taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, in Roman, Montana, we're here to bring you the word of the Lord as we begin the podcast. This time coming from Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, where Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Here we are, taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics. Well, taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton. As we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Praying that this podcast help uh, give you the give you the answers uh, you've been looking for and, and help you um, navigate the, the waters of, of uh, Christian thought. Um, now let's go ahead and welcome on Brian and uh and get this thing rolling hello brian hey curtis is uh is your mind uh mush after the yeah. last two podcasts hey. yeah <laughs> yeah for sure right yeah <laughs> yep. it was yeah, pr- so pretty intense pretty intense discussion yeah. but wonderful wonderful like, discussion we appreciate zach breitenbach and uh, a man of, yeah. of great great wisdom <laughs> yeah yeah, so I do want to touch on that a little bit, though, Brian, if you don't mind. Um, hey, hey, before you our, do, uh, before you do, Curtis, let, let me just—I want to give yeah. one brief announcement. Um, it, in case you haven't noticed, we are doing a lot of interviews through the summertime, and we're calling this something. You know, we may come up with a catchier name to this, but just kind of the uh, kind of just what's come off the top of our heads: the summer of interviews. <laughs> right. right. So, so we're we're doing this through the summer. Coming up through at least September, and probably cut it off at September, and then this this fall we're going to take up another theological topic, uh, Curtis and I, and work through right. probably something I think we're talking about maybe Christology or something like that, and so we'll probably right. move through that coming up this fall. But we have some exciting guests on the books. I want to let you know about uh, coming up on the July 11th podcast. We have uh, Dr. Ronnie Campbell who is going to talk about the importance of theology to the task of apologetics, and this is from his book, For the Love of God. Dr. Leo Purser, my dissertation chair, he's going to be with us coming up July 25th, talking about the new perspective of Paul. Dr. T.J. Gentry, a good friend of mine, he is on the Immortal Apologetics team. Uh, He's going to talk about pastoral apologetics. This is going to be a good one, too. All of them are going to be good, but I'm looking forward to this. He wrote a book called Pulpit Apologist, and he's going to talk about how you can integrate apologetics into the pastoral role. August 8th, Dr. Tim Stratton is going to be back with us talking about his book, Mere Molinism. August 15th. Yeah, buddy. buddy. (laughs) August 15th, Amanda Burke is going to be on with us as we're going to talk about financial apologetics. And Curtis, this was just booked today. Big time guest coming up. Not that that the other ones aren't big time. They are. But coming up (laughs) September 5th, We've got Dr. Michael Heiser, who's going to be talking oh, about. Man. Yeah, he's going to be talking about the unseen realm, and uh, very excited yeah. about this podcast coming up September fifth. Yeah, that's good. I'm excited. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. 
Yep, I even got a few questions for him. Awesome. In my head already. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I do want to. I do want to. Uh, you know, kind of help some people with this. Um, whether you're um, deeply theological or you're just stepping into the Christian faith, um, understand this podcast series is to help stretch our mind. That's that's what we're to be doing as Christian believers. But I want to encourage you. Even though we're going to get into the, and I call this, I, I kind of thought of this picture, Brian, as we're as we're going through the the Christian faith is kind of like we come into this Christian faith, we're engaged with the scriptures, we're engaged with our community in, in our church, we're kind of like in this park, in this garden park, where we can have you know a picnic bench over here, or we can be around a fire ring over here, we can be playing in the sprinklers on this side or whatever. The, this series that we're doing, you know, there's 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 a, a deep thought about it. Those those we can all engage and be interactive and and do the things in the park, but the guys that are running behind the scenes, you know, keeping the bushes cleaned up and and keeping the sprinklers going and knowing all that's what that's what we're talking about. Is these guys right here are the guys that are. Um, I don't want because I don't want to call it theological weeds because it's not they're not weeds. It's good quality stuff. It's healthy stuff. It's what makes things flourish. Is understanding what these guys are talking about and how we can have a solid understanding um, in our Christian faith about the deep thinkings of God, and we can enjoy that garden or that park even more. Well, yeah, and and one of the aims I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago, and I and I told him that one of the aims of Bellator Christi, you know, we talk about you know the main motto is taking up the sword of theology and the shield of apologetics as we step into the arena of ideas, indicating both the theological and the apologetic aspects that we deal when defending the Christian faith and promoting the Christian faith. But one of the main tasks that we have at Bellator Christi is to engage these high academic issues, but to bring them down to to the level of the general audience. And I was talking right. to someone this past this past Monday at a meeting that I attended, and um, mentioned that part of my vision for Bellator Christie in doing this is to provide resources to individuals who may have questions, but may not have anyone they can go to to talk about these issues because whenever I had doubts, I really didn't have many people to just to talk to about, you know, the Christian faith. And it's not that anyone was bad and it wasn't that, you know, I was around some great people. There wasn't anything bad about them. They just hadn't investigated these things, you know? And so that's what I want to make sure that Bellator Christie is available to anyone who may be struggling with their faith or anyone who may have questions about the, the Christian faith to provide a safe haven so that they can come here and ask their questions and interact with us, you know, and, yeah, and provide the go. answers for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to, you know, I know this is your heart, Brian is, is, uh, as we get into those theological bushes and, and discuss these deeper to- topics, uh, what I want to do is, uh, show people the importance of taking in what you can, um, as you go along in your walk, um, you know, taking in what you can, the information that you can, and as you go along in your walk, 
in this Christian walk, um, you can go back and revisit these topics. And and the and I also want to share the importance of taking in this summer if you can, if 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 you can set aside a larger piece of time in your devotional time, in your time spending with the Lord, take in bigger chunks of Scripture and understand the greater flow and the picture of God's relationship uh, with us. And it says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his masterpiece, his, his poema. Mm-hmm. And I've always, I always ask this question to people. If, if we're his masterpiece, shouldn't we get to know the artist? Shouldn't we get to know... <laughs> You know the That's person that created us, yeah. And 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 it's and it's deep, but yet it's it's easy to do if we take the time to just say, God, I want to open up. I want to get to know you more. I want to know what these topics are, but I want to know. I want to see the flow of Scripture and see how you interact with people's lives. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, anyway. Let's go ahead and dump, jump right into our topic today. It's going to be the recap on slipping through the cracks and some extras. Yeah, kind of like a so variety, start with the variety show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to start with the extras first, and this one's going to be good. So first off, let's, um, let's talk about you wanted to talk a little bit about the 2020 update of the NASB. Yeah, um, you want to go ahead and dive into that. The NASB has been always been one of my favorites, my favorite translations. But uh, quite honestly, the problem well, the problem with the NASB is in times past. Want to break that acronym down for people? Sure. Yeah, New American Standard Bible is what that stands for. The problem okay. with the New American Standard Bible is that it's devoted to accuracy, fidelity to the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts of the Scriptures. And uh, in fact, the fourfold aim of, if, of the Lotman Foundation is one: these publications shall be true to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek; two, they shall be grammatically correct; three, they shall be understandable; and four, they shall give the Lord Jesus Christ His pr- proper place, the place which the Word gives Him. Therefore, no work will ever be personalized. Um, so, never be personalized to any certain agenda or anything of that sort. The problem with the NASB is that due to its devotion to the original languages, it's often it often comes across as a little wooden, a little um, a little difficult to understand, so to speak. And so, um, anyhow, the 2020 update is is more of a dynamic translation. It opens up now. Some people may not like it because you know I've heard I was talking to someone today that was talking about the gender inclusivity. Well, only thing that is is what they call gender accuracy. So let me read you this text. In the past editions, it was common practice to translate the Greek word anthropoi as men and the Hebrew adam when used as plural as men, uh, as well as all pluralistic terms of ish and similar words. And so he goes on. He goes on to say that. Um, the the well for instance the word brethren the word was used in past editions of the NASB as a plural of the Greek brothers because it can be used in a formal setting anyhow they refer to be gender accurate they add ancestors when speaking of large groups so it may be that it's talking about oh, men and women so it's not anything where they're trying to the CSB does the same thing many other translations do the same thing yeah, it's yeah. not that they're trying yeah. to change the genders it's that actually they're trying to be truer to the sense of anthropoi yeah. and to the words of delphoi 
um, to say that there were women involved in that in that yeah, yeah. situation. So they may use brothers and sisters in said context. Um, Interesting. It's it, it's a very readable. The only problem I have with it is that <laughs> this this may sound like a weird critique, but I think it's about ten years too late. <laughs> Because you know the NASB and the um, NIV were have have really been well. I think from from earliest memory they've been two of the biggest translations. And I know in twenty eleven uh, they, they had the um, version of the NIV that came out that uh, some people had a lot of problems with it. Uh, there, there are a couple things I don't like about the NIV 2011, but it's really more along the lines of the fact that they italicize the longer ending of Mark and then the woman caught in adultery story. They italicize it to a real hard to read. That and the issue with John 3.16. But outside of that, that's, that's the biggest issues I have with it. But um, I was just thinking to myself the other day, if they could have come out with this 10 years ago, Boy, they could have been right. a major competitor, and I about bet you'd see the NASB in the top three Bible translation sales because this right. one reads really well. I'm going to give you an example, Psalm 66. So this is the 95 edition of the NASB. It says, Say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power. Your enemies will, be, will give feigned obedience to you. Here's the 2020 version. Say to God, how awesome are your works because of your greatness, of the greatness of your power, your enemies will pretend to obey you. So it has a better flow to it. Uh, and then the feigned obedience, that's kind of a real formal you know, sense. Uh, this one says, will pretend to obey you, giving forth a, a better uh, understanding of what's represented there. So anyhow, 2020 edition of the NASB, I've been really impressed with it. Um, I, I haven't found anything bad about it thus far. Hmm, that's interesting. I got most of my most of my memorization uh, had happened through the New King James version, just because that's. I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, in the Catholic school, being a Catholic kid, <laughs> it was King James and New King James, and so a lot really? of my scripture. I'm surprised that I had, by that. I... Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So I mean the. For me, the and the New King James is just something that I've had. I've had my hands on in the past and through the past, and and so um, I don't know. You know, I I had a teacher that was um, that was in school that that really was uh, New King James and had a lot of stuff going through that, and maybe that's what I mean more by than the Catholic, you know, what the Catholics hold to, but, oh, sure. but it's, it's just what he had. And so it's been, it's been one of those things where I, it's been a hard transition for me to grab the ESV and try to start memorizing those same verses and, and get that. Um, I would like to have something that was, you know, like the new King James, but not quite as, table-like or wooden-like yeah. as the ESV. Well, you, know? you may want to give the NASB 2020 a try. I mean, because it really reads very similar to the 95 edition in some areas, but it's simplified um, 
you know, and I'll be honest, you're talking about, you know, traditional translations. Even still, whenever I read passages of Scripture from Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, mm. I'll still go back to the traditional version. Because oh, me too, yeah. <laughs> it's what people are accustomed to. Our Father to. who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Be thy name. <laughs> you, go, you go into the King James, don't you? <laughs> but the, the thing I don't and I can't understand is because, you know, in liturgical settings, they'll often say, and I don't know what translation is from, forgive us our trespasses as, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right. That's but, that's how I have it memorized. That's a I'm the same old, way. That's an old is that old New King James or old King James? It, it honestly it's not. Now. It's neither. And that that's the surprising thing because they'll say, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But the traditional yeah. way of saying it is to forgive us our trespasses as we yeah, forgive I, those I remember, who trespass against us. I remember searching it out and try, and finding it a long time ago. I did that, and I cannot remember where I found it. But I do believe it was a old King James version that that talks about trespasses. Because trespasses actually is such a great picture. It's actually better than death. It's it, actually better than it is than sins or any of that because it trespasses covers over all of it. When you memorize that verse and that's in your head, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Now, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of preaching in there I could go on, but I'll stop now because we got to get going. But <laughs> but the but the but the trespasses really speaks to our interaction in the world with people and how our actions are always interlinking with somebody or something. And if we tread wrongly, we're trespassing on their thoughts, their emotions, their actions and, and trespassing against them create, may create a sin or a, uh, a debt we have to them. Yeah. You know, in some of my studies uh, with my, from a dissertation, I came across something that actually spoke about, because I'm going to hopefully, if everything passes the proposal, be dealing some with the Lord's Prayer. And it's interesting that I came across a resource that, that made a very similar argument to what you just did, that trespasses is closer to the original word and covers a larger scope. But I'm thinking I came across that it may have not been the King James Version, but it may have been like the ASV, the American Standard Version, or even the old RSV Version. Huh. Um but I'm not sure which one it is. It seemed like it's it is an older translation, but but I can't remember which one it is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it just kind of shows you. This old cowboy can kind of still think about things. I guess <laughs> I'm close to some big, deep theological thinkers. <laughs> uh, but so. Uh, let's get to the question here. Do you happen to know the manuscript that the NASB uses, and um, what's why the update? I guess we already covered why the update. But well, the update to is the, to, the update is with with you know language changes. Language changes uh, all the time, whether we realize it or not. You know, there are some things that enter the the Oxford Dictionary now that weren't weren't there twenty years ago. So part right. of it is to make it more readable for modern audiences. So one of the things they've done, like the CSB, is they, they're using a little less formal language to allow it to flow, uh, excuse me, a little bit better than it has in times past. 
And one of the I biggest see, driving okay. factors, let's be honest, for the Bible translations, this is coming from publishers, is is for sales. You know, and obviously the NASB is very accurate. In fact, many have said it's probably the most accurate translation on the market right now. Um, I think CSB, ESV would be right up there with them, though. But uh, it has many academics have always cherished and loved the NASB for its accuracy and um, veracity to the original languages. But they needed to cushion the rigidness in some of the terms to make it more relevant and readable uh, for modern audiences. So uh, as far as the Hebrew text, the present translation uses the Biblica, Hebraica, um, and they've been employed together with the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, ancient versions, and the most recent scholarship from lexicography. I probably massacred that. But anyhow. Um, well, I probably would <laughs> mine would, I would have destroyed that word. <laughs> now, one of the things that you'll find the NASB doing is that they capitalize personal pronouns for God. So if it says he referring to God, it'll be a capitalized okay, perfect. he. If it's your, sure. it'll be capitalized. So they do that. The Greek text sure. uh, comes from the Novum Testamentum Graci. Uh, for Acts and General Epistles, the Editio Critica Maior was followed in most instances, instances as well as the uh, the most uh, current um, scholarship uh, findings from recent scholarship as well. So um, it, this is going to use, like most modern translations, it's going to use more of the uh, Codex Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, along with other Greek manuscripts, not just those, but really a wealth of different manuscripts across the board to get the best picture of what the uh, mm. Scripture says in the New Testament. But the Novum Gracie uh the uh, translation of the Greek text, or that version of the Greek text, was used uh, for the translation. So, no, Novum Testamentum Gracie. So, what what did so is this a is this a older manuscript to what was what has been used on other translations? Not to get into this, but i.e. the King James version or um, any of those. That that could be its own podcast. <laughs> the, the, I king, know, the king I know. <laughs> the King James version uses comes from the Byzantium text, or actually comes from the Textus Receptus, which flows from the Byzantium text. Um, it is a it is a younger version of the Hebrew and uh, Greek texts. Uh, when I say you know when you in, in biblical scholarship, you want to go back as early as you can get. Because additions right. or subtractions can be made. Now, many people will say, well, these new translations have taken things out of the Scripture. Scholars will say, no, the, the uh, Byzantium texts added things to the text. And it wasn't necessarily done out of uh, any mo- malicious intent. There was no right. malicious intent behind it. Some of it was to cushion out some problematic areas uh, where to try to help the Gospels flow a little better together. Um, it was to try to cushion a few things in certain areas, but uh, 
Um, and sometimes they would even have study Bibles where some of the notes might slip in. But I don't think it was done from anything malicious. I don't think there's anything wrong with the additional verses. But to be true to scholarship, that's why modern translations usually put them in the footnotes uh, with a note saying I was that, just going to say, yeah, yeah because the, the verses are... The verses aren't missing out of the scriptures. They're just they're put in the footnotes because right. they're not included in the earlier manuscripts or texts that we've been able to now dig up. Absolutely. Find. And yeah. as far as scholasticism, you know, the Greek Hebrew experts by and large are going to tell you that the earlier manuscripts are better uh, because of that fact. Um it's, it's yeah. just closer to the time of the originals. Yeah. Yeah. So does it does it um, do uh, red letters too? It does. Do you know? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if I didn't, because I know some, some Bibles do tend to shy away from the red letters just to, so you kind of have, the reader has to think about what's, yeah what's being there, but... Um, I, you know, and I grew I, I up like on a red. I grew up on a red letter edition Bible. I, yeah, I me love too. Them. Me too. Yeah, me too. Because it's one of those. It's like, ah, oh, comfort. <laughs> I got Jesus's <laughs> words right here. You know, so I don't have to guess at it. You know. So, so, do you got any UFO music? <laughs> well, let's see here. Hold on a second. Let's see if I can pull up something. Here. Because you know what? I better not. I better not. I better play nice because I got this video set up okay. here. I'm afraid I'll lose it. Okay. Because <laughs> if I had another tablet, I on would. On June, on June 25th of 21, I really want to play the X Files music. <laughs> we have UFO information that was released. Do you want to cover that, Brian? <laughs> yeah. I so wish I had the X Files music pulled up. I know. <laughs> So it's, uh, it's very interesting. So the, the information that was released, um, it doesn't say that necessarily aliens have visited us or whatever they may be, if they're even aliens. You know, there's, a lot of que- there's a lot of questions as to whether um, <laughs> even biological beings can do the things that these things that they've seen have done, which I'm going to play a clip for you here in a moment. But the um, according to let me get it pulled up here, according to the office of the director of national intelligence, uh, they released a report June twenty fifth to to affirm that uh, they had identified what they called un- UAP unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, they also say that it, and I quote that the UAP hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP. And it says, in a number of incidences, and I quote, UAP reportedly appear to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing, or multiple misperception and require vigorous, additional vigorous analysis. There are probably multiple types of UAP requiring different explanations based on the range of appearances and behaviors described in the available reporting. Now, here's one thing they say. The UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. So, whatever this is, it does seem like it may be... 
problematic thing from the way this thing reads. But it goes on to say that they report 144 instances of, of uh, government officials, military officials, having observed 144 instances of observing UAP. 143 of the 144 instances cannot be explained. <laughs> now, to add to this, what does this look like? Well, let me play a clip for you here. This comes from uh, this. This clip is going to describe who this guy is, and so let's play it now. Christopher Mellon served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush and was on the staff of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He had access to top-secret government programs. He says what Dietrich and Fravor witnessed demonstrated technological capabilities beyond those of the U.S. military's most advanced aircraft. In the case of the Nimitz, they seem to, these vehicles seem to have unlimited loiter time, which we don't have. We're limited in terms of, of altitude. It's hard to design something that functions well at ground level that can go you know, 60,000 or 80,000 feet. And then drop. And then, and yeah, and then drop down to the deck or drop to 20,000 feet, in a, you know, in a, second, a straight vertical line. In seconds? Yeah, in seconds. And this has been captured on radar? Yeah. I've talked to some of the radar operators who observe that. Then the acceleration is beyond any, far beyond anything that we, that we're capable of. So What's the fastest one of our jets can go? Probably for a very brief period of time, uh, 1,500 or 2,000 miles an hour. Um, nothing near the degree of acceleration that has been observed in some of these cases. There's nothing we could build that would be strong enough to endure that amount of force and acceleration. So they also say that they, they, they didn't really say what these things are, uh, but they said they didn't, it didn't appear like it was anything that came from enemy nations. They know it didn't come from us. They say they don't think it's extraterrestrial, but they really don't know what they are. So it it really left a big question mark out there as to what these things are. Um, so that's kind of where that's kind of where we are now. Right. So the the next question I have then with that is, was it what you expected? You know, I really did not know what to expect. I figured one or two things were, were going to happen <laughs> that they were probably going to say either one that, that that there hasn't been, you know, there've been reports but there's there's no evidence to suggest that any of this is anything uh, just to deny the whole thing or to say that we've experienced things we don't know what they are uh, but we're going to leave it at that. And the latter is what they did. I think it's the more intriguing option uh, of the two, but uh as this unclassified thing says, the available reporting is largely inconclusive. They don't know what to make of this. Um, <laughs> you know, they did say of of the 144 reports originating from UAG USG sources, 80 reports involved observation with multiple sensors. So this is not just a person seeing it; it's documented on radar and all other uh, other other uh, recording devices. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so we'll move away from that. Since this is a theological or theology podcast, I have to ask: <laughs> aliens? <laughs> what impact would aliens have on one's theology? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, uh. Personally, you know, we know that God created all kind of different creatures. Um, we we know this to be the case. We know that there, the Bible tells us about angels. The Bible tells us about demons. It's not even completely known that that might not be what this is in some degree or form or fashion. I mean, there are some people who say that these beings could be demonic. These beings could be extra-dimensional. Really have no clue. But the thing we, we should realize and understand is that God created this universe. Um, he is the only necessary being that exists. So could there be other life forms across the universe? It's very possible. But if they are good, bad, or ugly, God created them. He is the ultimate right. source for all things. Right. So, okay, so let's kind of go into that. What could someone expect if there was other life forms since we are, we, as humans, it tells in Scripture that we are made in God's image. We bear something different than than all other creation. What can what could we expect if there was something out there? We know we we know that we were made in God's image. Um, I think that part of that aspect is the fact that we bear consciousness, we bear a human soul. Um, I think that's that's. I think in in some instances we have a triunity in our own selves. You know, body, mm-hmm. mind, and spirit. Uh, although I think this mind and soul go together, but um, but nonetheless, you know, we we have. We are made in God's image, and so could there be other in- entities out there made in God's image? I mean, it could. It's possible. The Bible didn't say that we were the only ones made in God's image. It could be that there are others. I'm not saying that there that there are. Uh, I'm just saying leaving open the door of possibility that there could be. Um, but I really believe that we're probably the only ones made in God's image as, as He made us. Um, you know, it, it would be very interesting if there's ever, ever any conclusive evidence that there are other sentient beings out there. That would be very intriguing, but I don't think it should rattle our Christian faith. Uh, I don't think it should rattle us. <laughs> You've got the better show theme. <laughs> Just had to put on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> but but to, uh, to answer your question, I you know I don't think I, honestly. I mean, some people would be rattled by this, and I've heard people say on on podcasts where they talk about paranormal things that this would shake the foundation of religion. I really don't see how. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't see how or why it would. I mean. Wh- What's the humanist? What's the humanist view going to say about it? <laughs> you know, yeah. It, 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 who's going to have the better? Here's the here's the thing. Who's going to have a better a view or a better understanding of what outer space or what other beings would be? Would it be the Christian view or would it be any other view? I I I rest on the fact that. We understand through Scripture that we are, we are one of multiple created beings that God created. Mm-hmm. Could He have created other things? Yeah, it's it's it still doesn't take away the fact that the universe ha- is fine tuned. It doesn't take away the fact that things appear to be 
um, set in motion for a purpose and a place and an understanding. It appears that there was a mind behind all of these things. I mean, we got podcasts on all of these types of topics. It doesn't take any of that away if there is a little green man flying around in a soup bowl. Well, if you really stop and think it, look at look at our own look at our own planet. We're yeah. we're discovering new species all the time. I mean, there, you know, uh, marine biologists are looking deeper and deeper in the ocean and finding some very unique animals at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Well, we haven't yeah. been to the all, all yep, to the bottom yeah. of the ocean. <laughs> yep, exactly. So there are animals still yet to be discovered. I mean, there's even evidence. I've seen uh, uh, pieces of evidence that could suggest that there are giant squid in the ocean that's never that uh, that could swallow a person. I've never home. even seen. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, haven't even seen the light of day. So there are there are creatures all of of all stripes uh, on the planet that um, other life forms, other beings. Now, could these alien life forms? And you know, obviously, if if this is an extraterrestrial, you know, they would have um, you know a lot of knowledge, and you one would think at least. Um, but whatever they are, I mean, I've heard, even heard some people say that when you're talking about things doing what they've witnessed them doing, you're talking about experiencing forces of 10,000 Gs. You know, no human body, no no biological form, at least in our planet, could withstand something like that. Right. So what right. is it? I don't know. Um, yeah. It, it's Well, look at, like... <laughs> Like you were saying, in the ocean, you have you have creatures that are down there that glow in the dark, that have no eyes, that can go from you know, you know, four hundred feet below the sea level down to a thousand foot below the sea level in a matter of you know a matter of minutes, and they don't suffer any pressure changes or or suffer the same kind of pressure issues that we would at. 40 feet below the sea before below the sea mm-hmm. so so i mean is it possible yeah i mean so just kind of i know that we got dr michael heiser coming on but he's also got another podcast that he does um he has the naked bible podcast which he dives in deep on a lot of theological things which i just i'm a nerd on that one but he's also got another one called uh Piranormal. And and it goes into a lot of these kind of things, you know, the Twilight Zone type stuff. And it's actually pretty fun to listen to. Oh, yeah. Um, they go into talking a lot about a lot of stuff. And so to hear what he's got to say about it is actually pretty good. The guy's whip smart when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, and, and that's the thing to remember that this could be some type of, you know, I think I've even heard him mention that this could be some form of, of – um, we say divine being, not saying God, but you know, a, a higher level being like one would expect to see with angels or something like that. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's possible. You know, is it? Is it not? Who knows? Only God does. But th- there is a yep. possibility that it could be something like that. But again, only God knows. Yeah. Nothing to shake your faith over. Oh, Lord, no. I so, know. yeah. Yeah. So we had an interview. Uh, two-part interview with Dr. Zach Breidenbach. Um, 
<laughs> first first question. My brain is still hurting from this interview. <laughs> I don't know about you. So yes, to kick, kick the football back to you. Wow, dude. yeah, it was a it was a great podcast. And one of the things you know, whether you agree with Zach or not, uh, whether you agree with his positions or not, a position or not, the, the the most important thing is to realize is that there is a room for variety in the Molinist perspective. So it's not necessarily just a one size fits all. Uh, there is there's some wiggle room for individuals within the concept of Molinism, and so th- this is he's dealing with more of a uh, soteriological issue, dealing with uh, uh, individuals. You know, are individuals what were individuals given the best of possible worlds so that they so that some could be saved. Uh, or the most amount of people could be saved, would it, would it also mean that they weren't saved in other worlds? I mean, it's deeply a philosophical, theological issue to consider. But yeah. I think it's something, you know, well done on his part. I think he, he dives in deep with it and uh, yeah. uh, brings out some, quite honestly, some different uh, conceptions of uh, Molinism and how this works behind the scenes um, than, than what I had even considered uh, with the Molinist paradigm. Yeah, so... I mean, he kind of he kind of summarized it a little bit, but how can you summarize his position um, with this book? How can you summarize his position to where we can have a conversation around a coffee table with friends over, you know, tea and crumpets? Well, know? it's it's important to understand <laughs> that he is tea and crumpets and all that he is that he is taking a uh, an Armenian approach to Molinism. Uh, He's looking at this from the Armenian perspective that it's God's desire that all people could be saved uh, or would be saved. And so the theodicy problem, you know, how, and this is the issue of, you know, a loving God existing in a world full of evil. Why does God allow some bad things to happen? We'll take the follow, he takes the following position on the above issue that it is left unanswered by Plantinga. So he is taking the, the reformed epistemological view by Alvin Plantinga. This view says that while evidences are available to prove God's existence, it's not necessarily for everyone to come to faith to have those evidences. And he would say that there is warranted belief to believe in God. So when he talks about Reformed epistemology, that's what he's talking about. Now, largely speaking, this is used in the apologetic realm. Uh, talking about a methodology of apologetics and, and theology too. But uh, he goes on to say that the way in which the Holy Spirit works to overcome the barriers of sin and the will and the mind of each person is unique to that person, and I would agree with him on that. So through middle knowledge, he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit knows exactly what particular evidences, life experiences, and promptings of various kinds are needed to make a healthy, a particular unbeliever's sin-infected cognitive faculties to soften that unbeliever's sinful will so that he or she can respond to the witness of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's working, he knows what to use, what to do within the person to bring that person to faith. Um so he would even go on to say that this process requires our active participation and willingness to respond to the Spirit's work. So, um, so, um, 
So he goes on to say that it's not necessarily based on propositional evidence. But again, this isn't true for every person. It may be that some people are brought to faith by propositional evidence. So, But accepting and knowing the truth of the gospel is not based on whatever evidence can be given, but it's the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. So he goes on to say that God only considers actualizing worlds of free creatures that are as soteriologically optimal, that is, having as good of a ratio of saved to lost, as any other feasible world of free creatures. So what he's looking to say is that God created a universe, created a world, so that the the most possible people could be saved. There's an optimal balance of, of individuals who would be saved. Um, now, does this necessarily answer all the questions involved? Uh, that's that's debatable, but this seems to be the position he takes using the Reformed epistemological uh, method. So we spend a lot of time talking about the different methods, and I do kind of, looking right. back in hindsight, I kind of wish we had probably spent a little more time on his own position to let him, to let him flesh out uh, his position right. a little more. Right. Yeah, because um, there is a there is one when we were talking about it, how just like what you were saying, how God created a world and, and puts things in such a way that the most amount of people does the greatest good for the, or ends up having the greatest good for the greatest amount of people for the greatest number of things to people to be saved. I think William Lane Craig lines it out really well um, that how he does it. I, and I and I tried duplicating what he just said, but I probably butchered it pretty bad. <laughs> no, and and I and one of the things I, I like about William Lane Craig's approach, it is the fact that, and this is one of the things that actually sold me on Molinism, is is the fact that God knows what free creatures would do in any given circumstance. And he knows the people that would respond to the gospel, as opposed to the ones who would not. Now, now Zach said he, you know, he 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 gave the 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 point about uh, Jesus's message: "Woe to those in Jerusalem had it been given to Siren, Tyre and right. Sidon." I, I'm I'm a little iffy on that. I'm, I I still am kind of iffy on whether or not that's necessarily a a proof against that view. Um, I, I do think that there is room in scriptures for um, hyperbole, you know, in that mm-hmm. sense. And it may have been, you know, that um, that some people. It's it's hard to really dissect. I mean, I, I do think that there are really re- good reasons for believing that God knows the intention of each individual. Jeremiah chapter one, God knew how you know He called him from from the beginning of, before the foundation of the world, knew right, him personally, exactly. and I think He knew how He was going to respond when He was given the call. The same with Joseph, you know. So if you go back and look at the proof texts, there is in that sense that where God knows what people are going to do when put placed in that situation, and God foreordains those people to be placed in those situations. So for me, uh, I think William Lane Craig's strength in that is issue, e- even though there is that one text that can be problematic, I think if you give mm-hmm. the sense that it could be hyperbole, then it kind of it's not really as big of a deal uh, in the long run. And so um, right. 
I don't think we necessarily have enough evidence to say. Now, Zach would disagree with me here, and I, and I'm certainly not trying to shoot holes in his in his uh, podcast because I think he did a really good job, fantastic job, top to bottom. But just in my own personal opinion, I still I'm kind of sold out to the viewpoint that God knows what each person would do and created a world with that optimum balance uh, to give people the opportunity to be saved. I, I don't think it's God's will for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't know if that answered the question yeah. or not. That may have been a long <laughs> rabbit run. Well, around. no, it, it does. It, it does. So um, I guess, you know, here, here's the next one. It was interesting to hear that the Molinistic view creates space for Calvinism and an Arminian-leaning Arminian system within Molinism. Yeah, so is here he's talking about Alvin Plantinga. Uh, he, Alvin okay. Plantinga is an, is a reformed individual, but he also considers himself a Molinist. Um, but in that sense, is is as what Zach would say that they would say that people have free will except for salvation. You know, in that sense, you know, a person right. has to you know um, doesn't have free will in that regard. Now, I, I you know, I I think that Molinism. Personally, and I say this because I am more of the Arminian persuasion, I think Molinism better fits the Arminian position. Um, but it is possible for someone who to have Reformed uh, leanings to, to still be in the Molinist camp. And I think that's part of the draw uh, behind the Molinist perspective. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but I think there's room for different perspectives. And, and so, for instance, like Zach's take, he, he gives uh, his perspective from the Reformed epistemological viewpoint, William Lane Craig, uh, Jerry Walls' version of it, uh, many other views he, he presents in a wonderful fashion and uh, on his book. I mean, there's just still some areas, as I mentioned, where I'm still working through some of the issues. And, um, you know, because honestly, right. there's a bunch of stuff we covered the past two weeks. So a lot of stuff, oh, you know, to man. go through and dissect. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and, and I, there's there's a lot there, but I think it, this kind of goes into my next one. I think what comes out in this perspective is the same as when I read Scripture, I see God's providence, and I see human free choice, and I see God saying, if you if you'd have done this, or that, uh, the circumstances would be different. Oh, sure. What scripture, yeah, so what scripture that Zach pointed out really stuck out in his defense for this position? Yeah, I think there are several, and going back and looking through his book, I mean, he gives even even more. I mean, I think the, the scriptural defense he offers for Molinism is, is worth the price of the book alone. Uh, he does yeah. a very good job laying out the scriptural evidences, for, for the Molinist position. Um, if so, for instance, he mentions Jeremiah 38, verses 17 through 18. Uh, Here God reveals to Zedekiah what his enemies would do to him under the condition that he that he surrenders and, and under the condition that he does not surrender. So he's laying out the factual, counterfactual uh, issue. In 1 Samuel 13, 11 through 14, God reveals to Saul how he would have prospered as king and how his kingdom would have been permanently established if he had not sinned by illegitimately offering a sacrifice to God. 
uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, the Apostle Paul says that if the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there again is another passage of Scripture to work through, you know, about had the conditions been a little different, maybe yeah. maybe they wouldn't have done some things the way they had. Um, yeah. But ultimately, you know, there again, I and this is just from my perspective, and, and you know, again, I may change my mind next week, but as I'm working through this, I still think there's some element that God knows what each creature would do. So I think there is some individual perspective going on there, Um in the end, but again, that's yeah. just me working through this. Yeah, we're human. He's God. Absolutely. That's that's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but he um, does go forth to say that the biblical evidence that God knows factual and counterfactual truths, even one concerning human choices, is is a strong case, and I think he's absolutely right on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed every bit of it, and, you know, as he was going through it, man, he was just firing off Scripture, and he was firing off some stuff, and, and I, I just, I, I the the level of research that went into it, I think, is just excellent. It speaks for itself, absolutely. Yeah. So are we seeing a trend uh, leaning into Molinism, and what do you think, uh, what do you think is the draw? Most certainly, I'm I'm seeing a growth in from from what I can find. I'm seeing obviously there's still a lot of people within the Calvinist and classic Armenian camp, but it seems like there's a lot of draw here lately towards the uh, Molinist camp and the Thomist camp. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary down in Charlotte, North Carolina, is a big motivating factor behind the uh, resurgence of Thomism. Uh, Thomism is a little bit more deterministic than Molinism, but not by much. It's open to free will and open to uh, divine sovereignty, just as Molinism is. But personally, I'm saying this because I am a Molinist, I I think the aspect of middle knowledge, uh, which some form of it is adopted by other, other viewpoints, I think it is an ingenious way of balancing the the issues between sovereignty and free will in ways that the classical traditions, you know, in times past haven't uh, been able to do it so as masterfully, I think, as the Molinist position. Right. But right. Uh, I think that this middle ground position is gaining a lot of steam. William Lane Craig is a big motivating factor behind that. Uh, J.P. Moreland, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he's a Molinist as well. Biola University advocates Molinism a large, in large part. So I think that, um, that that's been a large uh, motivating factor behind the growth of, of the Molinist perspective. Yeah, yeah, and you're seeing uh, you see a lot more of of this, um, I guess, coming out in more just conversations with people. Um, if you were to just even ask them, you know, do you see God's sovereign hand in 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 the day to day? Do you see God's sovereign hand in the things of other people's lives? And that they'd say yes, of course. And then you ask them, well, do you have free will to to you know make the decisions and and do the things that you're doing you're doing today? And they would say, yeah, for sure. And so to balance those things, I think it's. I think it's a view that 
that really holds uh, center biblical. I think you're right, and we mentioned prior to the podcast that uh, we were talking about how far back this discussion between uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. human freedom and divine sovereignty goes, and it goes back to the Greek philosophers. But even within Judaism of the first century, there was already established three different camps. You had the Sadducee camp, which was, uh, I think in my personal opinion, they seem to be more deistic than even theistic, but they're, they're totally open, sold out to complete free will with very little to no divine involvement. Then you also had the Essene position, which was, was so deterministic that it was almost fatalistic, that everything was preordained by God. But then you had the Pharisaical position, which is the closest to Jesus's, and, and we definitely know Paul's position, which saw a blend of sovereignty and free will involved in there. There was a balance that took place between the divine sovereignty of God and human freedom. Oh, and so it's just, I, I find it fascinating that Jesus and Paul had the most in common with the Pharisaical camp as opposed to the other other two. Yeah. It's almost like um, when you were talking about it, um, the very first Jewish sect that that you were explaining is almost kind of like um, you could almost say almost like our what we understand now is like maybe even uh, modern uh, theistic evolutionists where where God you know essentially made the world wound it up and then just had doesn't have any more interaction with it. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's necessarily what the theistic evolutionists would say. Uh, okay. I, th- I think certainly the materialistic evolutionists would say that if if they have any persuasions to uh, divine interactions at all. Um, y- you know, there are different perspectives on theistic evolution. Biologos promotes uh, promotes that position. So I, I think from my understanding of theistic evolution that people would say that there were moments that God interacted in certain mutations or God interacted in certain points and then allowed those mutations to go about in certain directions. Um, now, personally, I'm a creationist, but so right. I don't hold to that position. But um, so, so for those who do, just to be fair, I think that they would probably still see divine involvement in certain junctures. Um, but certainly the, the deist... Would would say, uh, or even the the well, the deist would be the God of Einstein and the God of uh, Baruch Spinoza and others, where God wound up everything like a top and then released creation and then He's hands off from there from that point forward. So that right. would be in line, I think, with what you're saying. That would be in line with um, the Sadducee position. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well. This has been a this has been a good recap and kind of a, just a fun little lighthearted uh, podcast and uh, <clears throat> I do want to encourage our listeners to step into the Bellator Christie uh, website and to step into uh, into the podcast with us um, for the next several months. We're going to be having some uh, some some good interviews, some fun people to be around, some deep, deep thinkers, some ones that actually put practical application of some of them deep thoughts together. Um, so I definitely want to encourage uh, all of us to uh, to actually engage. And here's the thing. If people, if you, uh, 
if you have something that 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 comes to mind that you that one of our uh, guests has uh you know spoken of or or something that they said pop us an email let's discuss it and and let's kind of maybe either help further along that that uh that that idea or that question you know the topic or the subject and uh we'll just kind of help bang things around and try to try to help you out so but we here at bellator christy want to thank you for spending the time together with us and we value that time our prayers at this podcast help stretch your mind and as a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier, Soldier on, on, friends. friends. <laughs>been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash bellatorchristie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.